I can tell by the laughter, I think we all sense that tension, right, of what is ideal and what is real. And uh, we talked about that last Sunday, uh, the tension that exists between our real family and what we all hope the ideal family would look like for us. My name is Justin Ross, and today we're in week two of our series called Ideal Family. And once again, last week was an introduction into the series, and we walked away realizing this tension, this tension that exists between what we experience on a daily basis in our real family and what we know to be true in the ideal. We, we, we realize that there's a tension between what God dreamt of when he designed the family and the brokenness that we see in our existing family. This is, this is a real tension that we, we have to encounter, that we have to live with, that we have to experience on a daily basis. But we also learned that we have to live in that tension. Um, we have to live in that tension between what's real and what is ideal. It's a tension that we dare not resolve because the future of our families depend upon it. You're, you're going to understand more about what I'm talking about as we dive into the sermon today. Today we're, we're talking about the foundations of an ideal family, the foundations of what an ideal family is and, and where it begins and where it goes. And I want to stretch your thinking. I want to stretch my thinking today when we think about family. You see, when, when you think about family, when I think about family, we think like Westerners. What I mean by that is um, we, we think about our immediate family. Okay, if I was to ask you, hey, would you tell me about your family? You would, you would tell me about your spouse. You would tell me about your kids. You might tell me about your brothers and sisters, but it would probably stop right there. But in many other parts of the world, if you said, tell me about your family, they would talk about their great-grandfather. They would talk about their grandfather. They would talk about their father. They would talk about their children. They would talk about what they hope the future holds for their family. But in our Western way of thinking, uh, family is all about right now. It's, it's, we're just in a very immediate culture. Really, what we think about is the here and now. We don't really think down the road very far. We just think about right now. We don't think like generationally. We don't think um, about generations that came before us or generations that are going to come after us. We just think about the here and the now. And I'm going to share a couple verses from Scripture that show kind of what I'm talking about here, this generational thinking. Psalm chapter 78 verses 3 and 4, and verses 6 and 7. Now, this is King David talking, and he says in, in verse 3 of Psalm chapter 78, he says, I will teach you, and he's speaking to his children, I will teach you hidden lessons from our past, stories that we have heard and known, stories of our ancestors, stories that our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of our Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. Okay, why, why is he going to do this? Why is he going to tell his kids about the mighty wonders of God? Verse 6, so the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born. And they, in turn, will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. 
He wasn't just thinking about the here and now. He was thinking about his grandkids and his great-grandkids. He was thinking generationally. Moses said something very similar in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9. I want to read it to you. Moses said, be careful never to forget what you yourself have seen. Do not let these memories. He's saying, don't, don't let your story. Every single one of us, we have experiences. We have a life story. And he says, don't let these memories, whether they're good or bad, what he's saying, what Moses is saying is you need to share your experiences. You need to share your stories. You need to share your wisdom. Listen, the next generation desperately needs your wisdom. They need to hear your stories. They need to hear your experiences. He says, don't let these memories escape from your mind as long as you live. And he says, be sure to pass them on to your children and to your grandchildren. He's thinking generationally. He's thinking down the road. You see, you are who you are today because of the influence of your parents. And your parents are who they are today because of the influence of their parents. Okay, good or bad, it, it affects us. Okay, it affects us. And chances are, because you're a father, you're a mother, you're an aunt or an uncle, you're going to influence not only your own kids and your own nieces and your own nephews, but you're going to influence the generation after them. And we are who we are because of the people who came along before us. And we are currently, we're in the process, whether we know it or not, whether we're intentional about it or not, we are in the process of shaping the next generation of our families. Like right now, today, the decisions that you make, the way that you handle temptation, the way you manage your money, the decisions, the way you think, it really, really matters. It affects generations to come. What you do today determines the kind of legacy that you're going to leave for the next generation. It determines the foundation. When you die, people are going to talk about you. They're going to talk about you at your funeral. And the beautiful thing is this. You can choose today what people are going to say about you by your behavior, by your actions, by your priorities in life, where you spend your energy, what you do with your time. I'm speaking of legacy. I'm speaking of the foundation that you're building with your daily decisions and your daily actions. You see, every one of us, every one of us has an expiration date. And how you live your life to that expiration date, it really, really matters. I want to tell you a quick story this morning about my granddaddy. My dad's dad was an iron worker. And he was a really, really hardworking man. He worked really hard. And I remember my granddaddy, I didn't know him for a long time, just, just a really short season of my life. Um, but I remember my granddaddy, Warren Ross, when he was older. And uh, he, was, he was always smoking a pipe, cherry blend. Oh, I love the smell of that pipe. I have to be honest with you. Granddaddy was really good at horseshoes, too. Um, he, had, he would hold it sideways, and he would spin it. And it was like a ringer every time. And I never beat granddaddy in horseshoes. I never even got close. In 1951, 
at Park Hill Baptist Church in Pueblo, Colorado, my granddaddy heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he gave his life to Jesus. Now, my dad was just a young boy when that happened, but he tells me that he was really mad in that moment because he thought the pastor was making my granddaddy cry. Like, he was really mad at the pastor. Like, why are you making my dad cry? In that moment, my granddaddy's life was changed by the power of Jesus Christ. And from that moment, he did some things intentionally. He made some different choices. And one of them was he didn't just send his family to church. He took his family to church. He began to to build a different kind of foundation, a different kind of legacy. And because of that moment in my granddaddy's life, my dad grew up in church. And at the age of nine years old, my dad gave his life to Jesus Christ. My dad became a pastor and he faithfully served the Lord to this day. But because of that moment in my granddaddy's life, my dad came to faith. He became a pastor. He, he laid the spiritual foundation. And because of that, I grew up in a Christian home. And I got to experience the love of Christ on a daily basis. And it, was, it wasn't perfect, okay? We, were, we are a messed up family, okay? We, are, we got problems, but I saw a genuineness. Like my dad was who he was when he was a pastor. He was the same man when he was at home. He was genuine. He was real. He's authentic. And I'm standing here today because of the influence of my granddaddy in my dad's life. And because of the influence of my dad in my life, I'm here today talking to you about the things of God. You see, I'm standing on their shoulders. It's a foundation that I can stand on. There's, there's been some people that have told me, Justin, you're just riding the coattails of your dad. And you know what? To that I say, heck yeah, and I'm happy to do so. Happy to do so. And I hope that I can leave some coattails for my boys to stand on and to ride. Like I'm standing on their legacy, on their shoulders. I grew up hearing stories about God's faithfulness, about God's provision, about God's protection. You see, a generation, my granddaddy, I just barely knew him. But that generation greatly influenced this generation. And now, as I try to influence my boys, as they discover who God is, and and as they learn that God can be trusted, I'm standing on the generations of the past. You see, you you are who you are because of the family that came before you. And, And the family that comes after you, kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, grandnieces, grandnephews, they will be who they are in large part based upon your influence. You're you're currently in the process of making a mark on your family's future. You're, You're laying foundations for your family's future. What you do today is incredibly, incredibly important. We talked last week how there is a a lot of dysfunctional families, especially in the Old Testament of the Scripture. I was kind of chuckling to myself. You know, sometimes people say, you know, I really want a biblical marriage. And I'm like, really? Like, which one, you know? Like, Solomon's marriages, you know, like, uh, I like to say, I want a New Testament marriage, you know? That kind of helps me to clarify that a little bit. 
But there's a lot of dysfunction in the Old Testament. And I was reminding myself that God uses messed up people. Like, oh gosh, that gives me so much hope. He uses broken people. There's a lot of brokenness in the scriptures. So there's not a lot of, uh, you know, good, healthy families that we can point to and learn from sometimes. But there is one story, a very good illustration of this kind of foundation that I'm talking about, this generational thinking. The problem is, is this story that I'm going to summarize for us today, it covers about 60 years. And so there's a lot to the story. There's a lot that you can get lost in. There's a a lot of information. This story covers about two-thirds of the book of Genesis. But this story illustrates the power of generational parenting. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to tell you the second part of the story. And this is the part that if you grew up in church, you've heard this story. Okay, you've, you've, You're going to be familiar with this. I'm going to tell you the second part of the story. And then we're going to rewind and I'm going to tell you the first part of the story. And, and you're going to have to journey with me this morning. Okay, So you're going to have to hang in there. It's, it's, a, it's a longer story, but it's going to be well worth your time. And I believe God has a lot to teach us this morning through this story. And if you're not a church person, this may be all new to you this morning. And so, once again, I believe the Lord has a lot for us in this story this morning. So here's the second part of the story. It begins, it begins with a man named Abraham. And Abraham had a couple sons, and one of his sons was Isaac. And Isaac had two sons known as Jacob and Esau, but it was actually Esau and Jacob because they were twin brothers and Esau was born first. And then Jacob had 12 sons, and his most famous son was Joseph. So many of us grew up hearing this powerful story of Joseph. So once again, I'm going to quickly summarize this story for us so we can, we can get to the verses that we're going to cover today. So out of Jacob's 12 sons, um, we learn that Joseph was, was Jacob's favorite son because he was born from Jacob's favorite wife. Okay, so it's weird, I know, like dysfunction in the Old Testament, okay? So Old Testament family is very complicated. When Joseph was about 17 years old, he found out the hard way that all of his brothers pretty much hated him. One day, Jacob told Joseph to go and check on his brothers who were tending sheep out in the fields. And when his brothers saw Joseph coming, they decided that they had had enough of this Joseph. I mean, this favorite son, you know, he always gets everything. Let's just be done with him. They decided to kill Joseph. They decided, let's finish him off once and for all. And so when Joseph gets to his brothers, they take him and they strip off his robe and they throw him into an empty well. And they're trying to decide what to do with him. And and they finally come to a decision. They say, let's not kill him. Instead, let's sell him as a slave, all right? And then we can go back to our parents and we can tell our parents that a wild animal killed our brother and when we sell him as a slave, we can make a little money on this deal. And so they go back, uh, that's exactly what they did. They, they go and they sell him to some slave traders. They go back to their dad, Jacob, and they break his heart. They tell Jacob as they hand him this bloody robe, what they did is they killed an animal. They wiped all the blood on this robe. They hand this robe to Jacob and said, your favorite son from your favorite wife is dead. And they sold their brother into slavery. You know, when when a lot of us read the Bible, I think sometimes we tend to romanticize 
some of the things that we read. But, but here's a 17-year-old boy, and he's shackled behind camels, being drugged across the desert into a foreign land, into Egypt. And Joseph knows all about slavery. He knows that his life as he knows it is over. All right? There's no more video games. There's no more staying up late. Like, his life is done. He's a slave. In Egypt, Joseph is sold to a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar was a very powerful man in Pharaoh's army. In Potiphar's house, we learn something wonderful about Joseph. We learn that in these dark days of Joseph's life, he made the decision to live his life as though God was with him, even though it felt like God had abandoned him. At every turn, we see Joseph do the right thing in spite of his circumstances. He determines to do the right thing no matter what he feels and no matter what the circumstances were around him. And over time, Joseph earns the favor and the trust of his master Potiphar, but he also caught the eye of Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife made advances towards Joseph and straight up asked Joseph if she could have sex with him. But Joseph said, no, I'm I'm not going to do that. I mean, that would really dishonor my master Potiphar. And like, remember, you're married. Hello, you have a husband. Like, that would dishonor your your husband, and that would really dishonor God. And Joseph does the right thing, and the story goes on to tell us that Potiphar's wife frames Joseph. She claims that Joseph tried to rape her. And they believe her accusation, and Joseph is thrown into the dungeon. Now, Now, listen, it's really bad to be a slave. But it's really, really bad to be a slave in a dungeon. And yet Joseph determines to do the right things. In spite of how he feels, in spite of the circumstances around him. And then we come to a verse in Genesis that summarizes the situation. It summarizes where Joseph is at. Genesis chapter 39 and verse 21 This is while he's in the dungeon, while he's in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Like even though Joseph was in this dark place, he continues to live for God. He continues to make the right decisions. And even though at times it felt like God had abandoned him, Joseph continued to do the right thing. Like, where did Joseph get this kind of faith? I mean, where did this kind of faith come from? And you've got to read this story for yourself. It's in the book of Genesis. It's so good. You've got to read it for yourself. Time goes on. And uh, while Joseph is in prison, he meets a man that used to be the second man to the Pharaoh. And this man ends up having, this man man ends up having, having a dream. Joseph interprets this man's dream while he's in prison. He was the cupbearer to Pharaoh. He was the cupbearer to Joseph interprets this man's dream. And he says, You're actually going to be restored to the position that you were in. You're going to be the cupbearer to the Pharaoh. And the only thing that Joseph the only thing that Joseph out of prison, when you get out of prison, just remember me. Put in a good word. Put in a good word that I'm in prison. Remember that I'm in prison. And so what Joseph predicts. So what Joseph predicts comes true. This man ends up. This man ends up being restored to the position of Pharaoh. To Pharaoh. And and 
when the cupbearer gets out of when prison, the cupbearer gets out of prison, completely, completely forgets about Joseph. He completely forgot about. He completely forgot. He gets about. back to his position. He gets back to his position. Completely forgets about Joseph. Completely forgets about Joseph. And for more two years, more years, Joseph wakes Joseph up. Joseph wakes daily, up daily as a prisoner. As a prisoner. It just seems to get it worse. It just seems to get worse for Joseph. It goes from bad and it gets worse. You don't have to raise your hands, but you don't have to raise your hands. Have you ever felt that way? Where it's like, man, sometimes where it's like, man, sometimes when it rains, it pours. Sometimes life it just seems sometimes life it just seems like bad. Gosh, I thought it was bad, but gosh, today it's it's really Joseph continues to do the right things in spite of the circumstances around him. Two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. No one can interpret the dream, and Pharaoh knows that it's a really important dream. Suddenly, the cupbearer comes to his senses, and he's like, "Uh, Pharaoh, (laughs) um, I actually remember that there was this guy that I was in prison with, and he interpreted my dream. He said I was going to be restored back to the position of cupbearer, and here I am. It came to pass. What if you ask this guy to interpret your dream? He might be able to, to interpret your dream. And so they get Joseph out of prison, they clean him up, and they bring him to the palace. They bring him in front of the most powerful man in all the world, the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh tells Joseph, I've heard that the gods are with you and that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, I I can't interpret dreams, but my God can give Pharaoh the interpretation to his dream. And then Joseph says something that's really crazy. But it's a statement that's full of faith. Joseph said, there is only one great God, Pharaoh, to whom you are accountable. And when he makes that statement, the guards reach for their sword because nobody talks to the Pharaoh that way. I mean, even Pharaoh himself thinks he's a God. So the the soldiers reach for their swords and Pharaoh says, put your swords away. I want to see if he can interpret my dream." And so Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream, and Joseph interprets his dream, and he says that Pharaoh's dream means that for the next seven years, crops are going to be abundant. Crops all over the land of Egypt. I mean, they're going to have a bountiful harvest. They're going to have more grain than they know what to do with. But the following seven years, there will be a great famine, and it's going to destroy the economy of Egypt, and and it's going to destroy the economy of the surrounding nations. And you're going to, so he says, Pharaoh, you're going to have seven years of plenty, and then you're going to have seven years of famine. And then Joseph does something crazy yet again. He gives Pharaoh advice. I mean, who gives Pharaoh advice, right? And he says, Pharaoh, you're, you're going to need a really strong administrator. You need to put him in charge of building silos in every major city in your country. And you need to tax the people 20% of their grain. And you need to put that grain in silos and save it for seven years. And during the famine, people will run out of food, but you, Pharaoh, will be able to sell the grain back to the people of your country and the surrounding countries. And, and Pharaoh, this is going to make you incredibly wealthy, but, but Pharaoh, you need to have the right person in charge. And Pharaoh says, Joseph, I'm putting you in charge. And everyone gasps. I mean, people are like, this guy isn't even from here. He's not even an Egyptian. But Pharaoh says, can we find a greater, wiser man in all my kingdom? On that day, Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt. He becomes second in command. 
on that day. So Joseph gets to work, and sure enough, there's a bountiful harvest. There's plenty of grain. He goes around the countryside building silos and filling them full of grain. And when the first seven years are over, a horrible drought hits, and no one can grow anything. And people began to starve. And Joseph begins to distribute the grain to, uh, uh, to all the people that are buying it from him so that they can survive. And he distributes the grain. And finally, word gets outside of Egypt that there's food in Egypt. And people from all over the region, they begin to pour into to Egypt to buy food from the Egyptians. And two years into the famine, the family of Joseph runs out of food. And they have no choice but to go to Egypt to buy food. Can you, can you see what's happening here? The Bible is incredible. You should read your Bible. It's awesome. Here's, what's ha- here's what happens. Okay, Are you with me? Are you traveling with me? Got to hang with me. It's going to be worth it. Genesis chapter 42 and verse 5. Here's what happens. So Jacob's sons, okay, these are Joseph's brothers, the ones that sold him into slavery. So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with others to buy food, for the famine was in Canaan as well. That's their home country. Verse 6, since Joseph was governor of all of Egypt and in charge of selling the grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly. Wow. Now Joseph, in this moment, he is 39 years old. It has been 22 years since Joseph last saw his brothers. And there they are, arrayed in front of him, bowing before him, and Joseph has the power of life or death in his hand. Their fate is in his hand. Joseph recognizes them, but Joseph always, but Joseph also, rather, he, he also remembers the terror that he felt as a 17-year-old boy when his brothers threw him into a well. He remembers the laughs and the mocking when they sold him into slavery. He remembers their total lack of concern for his well-being when they watched him being drug off into a foreign country as a slave. But but here they are, bowing before him, their fate, their well-being in his hands. But Joseph, in this moment, he remembers something. He remembers a scene from his childhood. You see, Joseph connected the dots. Here's the part of the story that you probably haven't heard. And we have to rewind many, many years. Okay, now I'm going to tell you the first part of the story. So here's the first part of the story. Remember, there was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now remember, Jacob had a twin brother named Esau. And for the sake of time and without going into all the details, you just need to know a couple things about Esau and Jacob's relationship. Uh, Jacob did some things to Esau, like like stealing his birthright and stealing his blessing as a firstborn son. And this angered Esau to the point that he vowed to kill his brother Jacob. So Esau and Jacob, they did not get along. There is brokenness, 
okay in their family. They did not get along. Esau wanted to kill Jacob. There was chaos. There was division in their family. Twenty years goes by, and God speaks. Genesis chapter 31 and verse 3. And then the Lord said to Jacob, remember Jacob is Joseph's father. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your father and grandfather. That's Abraham and Isaac. And to your relatives there, that's Esau. God tells Jacob to go back to his brother. And then he goes on to say, this is very important. God says, I will be with you. I'll be with you. Now, this is a scary thought for Jacob because if Esau is the same Esau that he knew 20 years ago, he's not only going to kill me, but he's going to kill all of my sons. He's going to kill all of my family. But Jacob decides to obey the Lord, and he packs up everything, and they make the journey back to see Uncle Esau. And Esau hears that they're coming, and and here's how the story continues in Genesis chapter 33 and verse 1. Then Jacob looked up, and he saw Esau Esau coming with his 400 men. Okay, Jacob looks up, he sees Esau, and there's a small army coming at him. And Jacob knows what's about to happen. He's about to lose his life, and and it's too late to do anything about it. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and his two servant wives. Okay, Remember, messed up families in the Old Testament. Um, He put the servant wives and their children at the front, Leah and her children next. What we read next is, is really incredible. And Rachel and Joseph laughed. This is so amazing. Joseph, remember he had 11 brothers, but Joseph is the only one mentioned. Jacob had 11 sons, but only Joseph is mentioned. Let's keep reading. And then Jacob went on ahead, and as he approached his brother Esau, he bowed to the ground seven times before him. Now, now try to picture it, okay? There's 400 men, this small army, and Esau is standing there, and Jacob begins to walk towards his brother And every couple steps that he takes, he bows really low to the ground to his brother. He does that seven times. All of Jacob's family is watching, and they know that their lives, their fate, is in the hands of Uncle Esau. And the writer of Genesis says, Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they both wept. Then Esau looked at the women and the children and asked, Who are these people with you? These are the children God has graciously given to me, your servant, Jacob replied. Then the servant wives came forward and their children, and they bowed before him. Verse 7. Next came Leah with her children, and they bowed before him. Finally, Joseph. There he is again. Finally, Joseph and Rachel came forward, and they bowed. Before him. This is the story that Joseph grew up hearing from his father Jacob. The day that Uncle Esau spared your father's life. The day that Uncle Esau spared your mother's life. And the day that Uncle Esau spared your life, Joseph. On that day, there was reconciliation that no one expected and no one deserved. But Joseph, you're alive today because your uncle Esau forgave you. And now 
30-something years later, there stands Joseph with his own brothers bowing in front of him. And he's got the power of life or death in his hands. And he chooses to do for his brothers what he saw his uncle do for his own father and for him. In a moment of crisis, in a moment that is so emotionally charged. I mean, could you imagine being in Joseph's shoes? I mean, so emotionally charged. He chooses to do what he saw done for him. He extends mercy to his brothers who deserved no mercy. He restores his relationship with his brothers. And the story continues, and you're going to have to read it on your own in the book of Genesis, all right, tonight. The moral of the story is this. What your children, what your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, what they see you do is laying a foundation for what they will do in the future, in times of crisis, in times of hardship, when there's those lean months financially, like what they see you do, how they see you handle it, you're laying a foundation that they will stand on. Listen, they may, they probably will forget everything we say, but they will never forget who we are. They will never forget what we did when doing the right thing was difficult, when running from our problems would have been the easiest thing to do. But instead, Mom, you chose to stay and do the right thing. They will not forget that. Dad, when you chose to stay and to stick it out when you wanted to quit, they will not forget that. They'll remember who we are and what we do. So, so dads and moms and grandfathers and grandmothers and aunts and uncles, is what if? What if right now you're helping to shape the course of the next generation? Right now. What if, what if it's you that they're looking to as their pattern? Dads, what if you're the model for how they're going to treat your future daughter-in-law or your future granddaughters? What if, what if you're the model, Dad, of, for how they're going to raise their grandchildren? Moms, what if your kids take their cue from you on how they'll treat their future son-in-laws or daughter-in-laws or how you view money or how you respond in hard times? You see, actions not only speak louder than words, sometimes our actions are a ripple effect into generations to come. Man, talk is so cheap. It's what you do on a daily basis. It's the little things, the little decisions, doing the right thing day in and day out. And that begins to pile up. And that's building a foundation that future generations will be able to stand on. Yes, your actions speak louder than words, but it's bigger than that. It's broader than that. Because you can make decisions now. You can respond to temptation now. 
Young people, it can start with you today. You don't have to live a life of chaos and be fixed in the future. You can make decisions now to do the right thing right now, today. You can respond to temptation now. You can manage your money now. You can respond to relational crisis in such a way that it honors God and it builds a foundation for generations to come. I'm going to close with this. If, if, if this is true, if this is true that what we do day in and day out really matters for generations to come, what do you need to change? Like what, what commitments do you need to make? Not based upon emotion, not based upon circumstances. We saw from Joseph, man, your emotions will mess with you. Circumstances can mess with you but making decisions based upon who God is and that he's good, he's for you, based upon his goodness. What decisions do you need to make today to move forward, to begin to build a foundation for generations to come? And let me ask you this. If this is true, like why wouldn't you change? Why would you just keep doing the same thing, the generational cycle that just repeats itself again and again. You're like, man, this is the way my, my, my auntie lived. This is the way my mom lived. This is just the way I'm going to live. Like, why wouldn't we change? Let's do something different. Let's chase after God. Let's, let's leave a different trail. Here's the, here's, the, here's the thing, though. The choice is yours. The foundation for the next generation is actually yours to build. And you may ask, like, gosh, how do I do this? I, I don't have the strength to do this, Justin. How do I build this foundation? I don't even know where to begin. You know, to that question, to that statement, I would point you to Jesus. You see, Jesus said, with me, you can do anything. Man, your situation seems hopeless. You think there's no hope for your family. Jesus said, through me, with me, all things are possible. With me, you can do anything. The choice is yours. The choice is yours. I'm going to close in prayer. Father God, thanks for your word.